This week on the podcast, the author of Flat, Fluid, and Fast, talking about the talent mobility revolution. This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. This week, we have an incredibly distinguished guest, Bryn Kennedy, founder of Topia, author of the book Flat, Fluid, and Fast, and a 2020 candidate for the U.S. Congress, California's 4th District. Our conversation focuses a lot on what the social impact sector can learn about the talent mobility revolution and some organizational structure, and then we we can't, I just can't help ourselves and, and speak a little bit more about you know, uh, the state's policies and, and what elected officials and voters should be looking for uh, when it comes to preparing for uh, the coming job revolution uh, as we see it. It's a great conversation and Bryn shares uh, generously, shares generously her, her advice for how leaders in the sector should be preparing. I'm excited because we have, as today's guest, uh, Bryn Kennedy, the founder of Topia, author of Flat, Fluid, and Fast, uh, a fantastic new book that I'm excited to dive into, and also a uh, candidate for 2020 U.S. Congress, California's Fighting Fourth District. Bryn, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, George. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, so let's let's just jump into the creation of this book because obviously it's not like one day you wake up and you're like, you know what I haven't done in a couple of days? Write a book. <laughs> Get me to the point at which you're you're inspired enough and have gathered enough information to uh, to come together with this book, uh, flat, fluid, and fast. Sure, that's a great place to start. Um, the book really stemmed out of my experience founding and leading Topia, a talent mobility software company, over much of the last decade. Um, I've worked with HR leaders all over the world. And what I've seen in my experience with Topia and also in the policy work that I did in both Washington and Sacramento is that the vast majority of organizations are not ready for the future of work. Uh, we need to challenge old ways of thinking and break down silos that really no longer reflect today's realities so that we will be prepared. Our businesses, our government, have our workforce and our workers prepared. And that was the goal of uh, Flat, Fluid, and Fast is to provide a playbook for folks to succeed amid the changes to demographics, to technology, and to the economy that are so dramatically changing the way that we work today. And as you you are watching this industry change and have built a you know built a company around it, you are addressing the talent mobility revolution. What about you know like adding the the title of revolution? You're like, oh no, they're coming. It's all going to change, and it's going to change quickly. Revolution. Uh, denotes action over time and the time being somewhat limited. Is that the sense of urgency that you're trying to portray here? Yeah, it is in many ways. I mean, historic change is underway in our workforce uh, from demographics to technology. The, the economy is changing dramatically, and so is the way that we work. 
and to help more workers thrive and make more organizations agile and resilient in the face of dynamic change, we have to understand what's going on immediately so that we can redesign both the operating systems in our businesses and our contract for work in America. You know, a couple of statistics for you, George, and the listeners. Uh, millennials and Gen Z are 60% of the workforce. They switch jobs frequently and their careers are more fluid and less linear than prior generations. Automation and AI are creating new jobs and industries, but also threatening others. Work is increasingly dependent on mobility of all types across locations, projects, jobs within a company, career progression, family needs, and much more. Traditional HR models are often far too siloed to respond to the needs of an increasingly distributed and remote workforce. And companies and policymakers really need to support a different world of work that makes it easier for individuals to utilize their skills in more ways. This is a really unique time with all these things going on and combined they are creating this revolution and this imperative that business leaders and workers understand them and make changes. In my mind, what I'm envisioning here is, okay, I'm you know, running my nonprofit or social impact business. Uh, are we just talking about you know, remote employees? I have to you know, let people sort of check in and work from a, from a desktop and, and that sort of thing? It's a great question, uh, and it's important because when we say talent mobility, people are often kind of confused. Believe me, uh, uh, nine years ago when I started Topia, people were really confused and uh, wasn't really sure what I was talking about. But today, talent mobility touches a, a lot of different things. I break it up into four areas. There's geographic mobility. Folks are working across more offices and touching more parts of the country or the world and in, in how they work than ever before. Job mobility. So in a given career, someone may work across many different jobs. They may start in marketing, go into project management, spend some time in sales, and maybe make their way back to marketing, all the while building a toolkit of skills through their career rather than just progressing in one department in a linear career ladder. Uh, we are talking also about uh, employment mobility. So people may spend time throughout a career uh, spending some time as a full-time employee and then maybe sometime volunteering or sometime studying or learning something new and sometime maybe as a freelancer. So there's all these kinds of different tours of duty through a career. And then finally, as you said, we are also talking about much more location mobility. So working in a much more distributed and remote way. And, you know, that's something that I'm very excited about with this revolution, particularly uh, as the future congresswoman for California 4, which is a principally suburban and rural district, is with greater virtual work and distributed workforce, we really can unlock a lot of jobs in areas that are not uh, traditionally urban and where uh, maybe historically there haven't been because there's been sort of a focus on everyone needing to be in an office in a city every day. To come back to it, we're talking about the four areas as geographic movement, job movement, location movement, being like the actual location as an office or home, and then finally uh, employment movement. Is that correct? That is correct. And in the book, um, we talk in great detail about what each of those means, kind of what it what it has looked like historically, what the future will look like and how to get there. 
And um, that's the basis of you know where you're trying to go as an organization and what the playbook within Flat Fluid and Fast tells people. I love the the breakdown here and also the you know the noting that work from home is becoming uh, easier because of technological advances, assuming that we have connectivity. Uh, it also just speaking as a as a new parent, uh, it's a you know I'm working from home today, um, you know, because my my daughter needs to be picked up at a certain time, and I just you know uh, I needed to to sort of stick around locally. It's tremendous to have that flexibility, and it's hard to put a number on. However, the other side of my brain, and this is what you have to respond to, is yelling at me as a boss saying, there's certain advantages of having humans in one spot, in an office, congregating. How do you reconcile those two you know, voices? You know, I like to think about it like a rubber band uh, as an analogy in terms of a company or a workforce. You know, there are absolutely times where a, a workforce in the company needs to come together, needs to be in the office, needs to get information shared with you with each other quickly, needs to ideate, needs to kind of bounce ideas off of each other. Um, and that's why I think the, the notion of an office will continue to exist. But there are also times when people go into an office and they never talk to anyone else. You know, they sit at their desk, they are doing work, and in many ways, it's more efficient to do that work from your house without the carbon footprint of the commute, uh, without the time of the commute, and without the time away from the family. So that, that is how I encourage business leaders and employees to think about it. Now, the, the exciting thing is the vast majority of people live within, let's call it, three hours from a place where an office may be located. But historically, if we've had this idea that with no flexibility, that everyone has to be in an office every single day from nine to five, you know, two things really happened in our society. One, you had very uneven job growth between cities and uh, rural areas, and that has huge implications for our society. You also had uh, often couples needing or families needing to make a trade-off about which person in the family worked and which one stayed home to balance the home. Today, we don't have to make those trade-offs. We can have a much more fluid concept of work and leverage location mobility to support that. I'm interested because our audience is disproportionately nonprofit, social impact, uh, you know, B Corps type of businesses. And uh, just as a, as a frame, you know, roughly 10% of our, of our labor force is employed actually by uh, 1.7 million nonprofits in, in the country. Is there anything uniquely different to the way you sort of frame or even prioritize the, the four pillars of, uh, of this revolution when we're talking about the, the nonprofit sector? You know, George, I don't think that there is. I mean, I think the difference, there is a, a little bit of a difference in, in depending on the scale. Um, and that's true in the private sector as well as the nonprofit world. Um, but I don't think that there's any difference. You know, fundamentally, any type of organization wants to engage their workers, continue to innovate and do right by their workers. Uh, when workers are well supported and when they are empowered through the talent mobility revolution, it boosts productivity um, and it boosts the the output within the company or the nonprofit. Uh, it also enables workers to contribute in more ways 
And that's true whether you know you're a for-profit or a non-profit business. How does the talent mobility elements uh, deal? You know, how do you deal with, frankly, the the globalization impacts? The fact that I actually have somebody in India who who supports our work. Or, you know, the fact that, um, you know, through immigration, there's many people that come and can increase our labor pool. Uh, what about the, the sort of coming issues of, of AI as well? So the, the things that are challenging the, the opportunities as a result of globalization associated with talent mobility. So I think that the overall theme in Flat, Fluent, and Vast and with what's happening in our workforce is, is continued disruption. So there's a lot of things happening to work today. There's demographic change, there's technology disruption through AI and automation, you know, creating new jobs and threatening others. And there is, and we've seen this over the last number of decades, disruptions to uh, certain jobs and industries through globalization. What Flat, fluid, and fast really teaches business leaders and, and, and policymakers to do is be resilient in, and support their workers through these disruptions. The way that I think about it is you need to think about a worker with a set of skills that has done a job but can also do other jobs within the company. So if work changes for a given reason. You know, sometimes business leaders have just thought, oh, well, we're going to do layoffs as an example. You know, we've seen that through through decades. What I believe is that, that that's the old way of doing things, and that's not the way to do right by our workforce. We can offer people jobs in other parts of an organization, leveraging the skills that they've built up. There may be some learning in between that. But that's where workers can have the opportunity to go through a learning path within the organization, or there can be partnerships with community colleges for uh, lifelong learning and skills development. That's, that's what we really see is thinking about not a job title, not a fixed job, not a resume that is, you know, you are a product manager and forever you're going to be that. And the only way that you're going to have a job here is if there's a next, you know, rung in the ladder of product management. It's really thinking about much more the whole person, the skills that they have. Maybe they're a great communicator. Maybe they're a great writer. Maybe they're very analytical. Maybe they, they can speak another language. Maybe they're you know good with trades or, or manual labor. You know, There's a lot of different skills that a given person has, and those can be adapted and applied to other jobs within a business as disruptions do hit. Can you talk to me about some of the, the- you know, just tactical benefits maybe because with 60%, as you mentioned, of our workforce being uh, the rising generation, you know, job hopping is incredible. Like the numbers are like in, like insane. The number of jobs an estimated millennial is going to have is wild. And, you know, my sort of heuristic is trying to keep people longer than, you know, two years um, is, is a challenge. And you really have to design benefits around that. Can you talk to me just practically? What are some of the most effective ways of designing a benefits package system, salary, whatever it may be, that can encourage longer retention than that classic over under two years? Yeah, and and that is a big, uh, an important feature of the millennial generation. Um, you know, we like to say that they'll work across more companies than you know their parents ever thought of, um, but. You know, the way that I encourage folks to think about it is, is very similar to the prior point. It's someone has a set of skills. 
Now, why do people leave a company? They leave a company because they want another opportunity in many instances, or they want progression, or they want to develop new skills. There is both a moral and a business imperative here. We talked about when jobs are disrupted, looking at an individual or a worker with a set of skills and how those can be applied to another job within the company. There's also a retention aspect to this. If someone is looking for another opportunity, a, a company is much more likely to retain them if they say, okay, we understand you want another opportunity. Here are some other opportunities within the business that may continue to engage you. Sometimes those are in another department. Sometimes they're in another state or country. Sometimes they might be going to freelance to be able to work across multiple different companies. You know, a company needs to think in a much more fungible way about that worker so that they can engage them continually in different tours of duty. What I'm hearing, I guess, is making sure that there's a career path that where they would look to go of uh, a manager level, a director level, that it's clear that there is the mobility, <laughs> your words here, mobility to to see that in, a, in an org chart where they may end up uh, inside of an organization is seems seems to be the essence of what we're getting at. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's internal talent mobility and external, but that that is really the key thing is offering people continued opportunities within your business that are not necessarily just linear. Now, this, um, you know, I think that the current on, you know, the record lows of unemployment, we can, you know, we don't have to dive into the inaccuracies of this unemployment number. Uh, needless to say, it is a competitive market for attracting talent. And, you know, how does that, you know, I want to stay away from the gig economy because that's a whole whole can of confusion. Speaking to organizations, small businesses and nonprofits, uh, what is it that you see that can, in this book, help them differentiate and attract um, the, this talent and this type of worker? I think it's really thing, and I know that we're sort of talking about the same topic, but that's in, in a, a key part of uh, attracting, retaining, and engaging workers today. It's thinking about a career as an individual who's building a set of skills. There are very few, I would say, and you know, maybe very few is too strong, but within the white collar full-time workforce, there is an incredible demand for people to have different experiences through their career and build their skills throughout their career. Uh, that can be the way that you can retain people in that environment is by giving them exposure to different parts of an organization so that they can continue to learn and build different skills. That's a key, key, key part of this. If someone is just in one job with one repetitive activity for decades, you know, this generation doesn't make the trade-off for stability versus fulfillment in the same way that other generations have. So as a leader, whether it's a small business or a nonprofit or a big business, you must be thinking about engagement as also skills development. And that comes from exposure to different projects, working with different people and across different activities within the company. I understand. I, I definitely understand how this type of change needs to happen at, um, you know, a leader level, a company founder level, HR levels. You know, I, what I don't necessarily see is what a given state sort of to, to draw it back to the fact that you are thinking about this from uh, a national perspective uh, I just, you know, 
as a voter, um, what am I looking for when it comes to preparing the next generation of labor uh, with regard to policy? Like what, what is the flag I'm looking for? So I think there's there's a couple different sides to this. So one is education, ensuring that our education, our investments in public education continue to build uh, strong problem solvers. You know, fundamentally, when you're working in an organization that is exposing you to different areas and having you as a part of diverse project teams, there is a, a problem solving mindset that is beneficial. Um, and I think it's also encouraging people to think about how they develop their skills through a career. That's kind of one side of it. Um, the other side is we must think about our workforce as one workforce. People will be working in different ways as traditional employees as well as on-demand freelancers. And today's economy demands thinking about them as one workforce. It, we should have um, more traditional employment protections, benefits, and bargaining rights that extend to freelance workers who perform my more dynamic functions and more traditional job roles. Um, to the geographic point, I'm a big believer that we should ensure we have high-speed broadband everywhere in all parts of our country. I know that might sound crazy talking to you on a podcast. Wild. <laughs> Um, but let me tell you, in uh, my congressional district, which is um, rural and suburban California, um, Yosemite, Tahoe, outside of Sacramento, a great part of it doesn't have broadband access, literally. So if you're thinking about working just two hours from San Francisco in some parts of our, our district, you literally can't get broadband. Um, so you can't be a remote or virtual worker in any sense, even if you wanted to be. So there's an infrastructure piece, there's an education piece, and kind of a lifelong or career-long learning piece. Uh, and then there's a benefits or contract of work piece where we need to make sure that as work is shifting into smaller chunks or different tours of duty, that we as a society continue to provide employment protections, benefits, and bargaining rights to those people. Now, there's another side to this, too, which is, you know, I know not necessarily the focus of this conversation, but I think I would be remiss without mentioning it. And that is not everyone will work like this. Right. You know, this is we're very much having a conversation about the creative economy or the white collar workforce. When we talk about a lot of these things, we concurrently I am really supporting a greater investment in apprenticeships for our trades and uh, a path to the middle class for folks that may not go through college and may not become a part of this creative economy, um, but can really earn a good wage and do a lot for society uh, and for their families as a part of you know being in the building trades or in forest management or other aspects of the economy. Yeah, it's, it's an important note that, you know, a large swath of jobs, uh, you know, if we talk about the gig economy are actually uh, our front line for automation. You know, if you're if you're delivering something, do you really have uh, internal job mobility? If you are delivering humans or, or foods uh, or getting things from A to B, you know, it, it strikes me as something that you know. What is the the role of education there uh, to to say, all right, you know, this is definitely paying the bills today, but I, I, it seems like an intractable problem actually. Like I see the revolution, but I just don't see a solution. Now, I'm an optimist on this point. You know, we know all the forecasts that automation and AI will continue to uh, disrupt a number of jobs. But as I said before, a lot of the folks whose jobs are disrupted 
do have a, a toolkit of skills that can be applied into new jobs. Um, I do believe, and a lot of the research shows, that as jobs are disrupted, many new ones will be created. They will not necessarily require the same activities or be the, the same as they have been in the past. And so we as a society have a responsibility to make sure that the current workforce that is impacted by AI and automation has what we call a just transition to a new job. That's learning, that's benefits uh, supported through that. That's another job that can pay a, a similar or similarly strong wage for them. Um, that's the current workforce. Then there is looking at the, you know, the up and coming workforce and transitioning or revolutionizing, modernizing the education system so that people are coming out of grade school, community college, or four-year college with skills that are applicable for the jobs of tomorrow, STEM, problem solving, and all kinds of other things that uh, might be more relevant for the jobs of the future than skills of the past. Certainly not an easy question to, to answer in a, in a tiny podcast here. I appreciate you sort of mapping that out, but it's an, it's an important note and just something that comes to mind. And of course, you're right. The, the jobs of tomorrow haven't been invented. When my, when my dad was, um, you know, working as an architect early in his career, my current job literally didn't even exist as a wholesale category. Um, in fact, he doesn't even really understand it. I have to tell him I'm, I'm like an online architect. And that's the closest I've got to explaining what I do to my dad, the architect. Yeah, I mean, a podcast is a great example or any kind of app that people listen to a podcast on. I mean, 20 years ago, we never could have foreseen that we would be making a living talking across the Internet and on a podcast and that an app developer would be developing an app on an, um, you know, an iPhone or whatever it is, Android, to listen to those podcasts. I mean, there is a whole industry that was created. The same thing. Can, will continue to happen. What's imperative is that we have people in government that understand what's going on and can create incentives and use investments to prepare our workforce for the future and, and to support those who are affected in the near and medium term by some of these structural shifts so that they can develop other skills or their current skills can be leveraged in new jobs and that we can provide support for them in benefits and in training as those transitions happen. So before we move into rapid fire, uh, flat, fluid, fast, the book is out. What is a, a, a quick you know, final note that you would like our audience uh, to know about uh, this book? That it is the playbook for how to succeed amid the forces of globalization, automation, and demographic change. And any leader of any organization who does not read it today or any policymaker uh, will regret that in the next five years. You will be doomed. You will be doomed to, <laughs> to suffer the consequences of the talent mobility revolution. My words, not yours. Uh, okay, time for rapid fire. Uh, are, you, are you mostly prepared? <laughs> I think so. I'll do my best. 30 seconds-ish on your responses. Uh, what is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Since I'm running for Congress and I call an awful lot of people all the time to get 
donations for my campaign, since I'm not raising any corporate PAC money, just individuals, I use a uh, an app which helps me to manage all my calls called Numero uh, that was founded actually by a friend of mine who previously ran for, college, for Congress and noticed all these inefficiencies. What tech issues are you currently battling with? <laughs> right now I'm fighting with, um, if you can believe this, right now I am uh, fighting with the um, TV folks about my cable. <laughs> so I just watch Netflix and Amazon, <laughs> but there's enough content to keep busy, but I'd really like to have cable at some point, but they've scheduled multiple appointments and not showing up for them. So <laughs> it seems like a basic one, but crazy. What is coming up in the next year that has you the most excited? Well, since yesterday officially passed the mark of me, the 2020 election being within a year, I am most excited to defeat the incumbent Tom McClintock here in my district and bring real representation, someone who lives here, someone who's focused on bringing dollars back to our community, and someone who is uh, clearly aware of the future of jobs uh, for everyone here. Do you believe that nonprofits can successfully go out of business? I believe that nonprofits are, are important and I would like for them not to go out of business and continue to, to do their good work. Can you talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things today? The biggest mistakes I've made in my career have been with respect to hiring. I'm a big, big, big believer today that it is the people that you surround yourself and the teams that you build that make organizations successful, this campaign successful. Um, my book's successful. I have a great editor, great agent. Um, and so the biggest mistakes I've made were in the early days of Topia and in my career in hiring people that weren't the right fit for the job that I was hiring them for. If I were to put you in the hot tub time machine back to the beginning of founding Topia, what advice would you give yourself? Pretty much the same answer as the last question. Uh, I would give myself the advice to uh, recruit for values when hiring people look for hustle and be really, really rigorous in interview the interview process for, for building teams and ensuring that you get the right people in the right seat. What is something that you think you or your organization should stop doing, uh, let's say, with regard to the campaign at present? Well, I drink an awful lot of coffee, which... <laughs> I did as a as a CEO and businesswoman as well, but I think I drink much, much, much more coffee now, and uh, we should probably do a little less of that and drink a little more water. Uh, if I gave you a Harry Potter-style wand for the social impact industry, what would it do? I think it would figure out a way for to do good and for people to make money, because at the end of the day, I think that figuring that out will really transform our society. What advice, uh, what advice would you give college graduates looking to enter the social impact sector? Think deeply about what you're really passionate about, what problem you want to solve, and build a socially responsible business around it. What career advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't follow? My parents taught me in absolutely every single way the values of hard work and tenacity. Um, so did my gymnastics coaches. I did gymnastics growing up uh, for the country, and uh, I developed from that in my parents just great, great, great focus and resilience. Um, and I've always put that into 
um, working in finance, the company that I built, and now I put that into my campaign. All right, Bryn, last hardball question. How do people find you? How do people help you? <laughs> you saved the hardest for last. Uh, you can purchase Flat, Fluid, and Fast, your playbook for succeeding in the future of work on Amazon uh, or on our website, which is flatfluidfast.com. And to learn more about the campaign, you can visit brynforcongress.com. That's B-R-Y-N-N-E-F-O-R-Congress.com. Well, I'm sure you've got a, a busy day ahead and an even more important year. Best of luck. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge. Good luck. Thank you so much, George. You have a good afternoon. As always, you can find resources at wholewhale.com slash podcast with all of the links and referred materials from this episode. This has been Using the Whole Whale. For more resources on today's show, please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on Twitter. Musical thanks to gregthomasmusic.org. Thanks, Thanks, Greg. Your tunes are still awesome. We miss you.